0: called uh, Platitudes, Proverbs, and Promises. And uh, I'm going to fly through this, but I, I want you to have your notes, so keep your notes there. Uh, keep an open Bible. I'm going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 2 to start with. We're going to be all over the place, and most of those scripture references are in your notes. The goal of this series is this. If you haven't been here in the last two weeks, we want to actually separate these platitudes. And, and platitudes are, they're just kind of General wisdom sayings that aren't even in the Bible. Sometimes they're true, sometimes they're not. They're just good thoughts mostly. Today's platitude is not a good thought. And then these Proverbs, they're, they're truths that are true most of the time, but they're true without the exception to them. Then we have promises. And what I'm trying to do is helping us hone in on what are the actual true promises in the Bible. Now, I'll give you an example Uh, parents who raised their kids in the church, uh, like they read Bible stories at home. They really want their kids to follow Christ, but they hit their 20s and they're like, I don't know if I believe this. And you know, they they read this verse in the Old Testament that says, train up a child in the way that they should go. And when they're older, they will not depart from it. And you're like, I'm counting on that promise from God. Just so we're all clear, that is not a 100% promise from God. There are Christian parents no perfect Christian parents, but Christian parents whose kids are not walking with Jesus as adults. And there is no 100% guarantee. Now listen, parents' hearts ache over this. And they want it so bad that they're willing to say, that's my promise. And I pray to God that your, your kids do turn in that direction, right? But what I'm trying to do is say, what are the 100% guaranteed promises of God? Now, I know I can come across right now in this series as like, oh, he's the pastor who's poo-pooing on all my promises. Because you have those little books behind your toilet, right? The Bible promise book. And there's like a zillion of them. And you open it up, and it's just filled with Scripture. Oh, promises about anxiety, promises about the future, promises about your career, promises about money. And you just start reading this. If you really actually read them, you're like, oh my gosh, most of these aren't even promises. It's a verse from the Bible, but they're trying to take a platitude or they're trying to take a proverb of truth and they're trying to fabricate a promise out of it. And I think what we do is we start making God look bad when life hurts because we're like, oh, God must not be real. He didn't fulfill that promise. There's all kinds of promises in the Old Testament. God, bring your protection. God, I trust in your protection. Those that love you, you will shelter them. And then we go through a really bad season. He breaks up with me. God, I thought you were like on my side. And he's like, oh, you, you took a proverb and you made it a promise and now you're disappointed in me? Like, hold on, wait a minute. I'm not trying to poo-poo your proverbs or truths that you think are promises. I'm really wanting to raise the hope in the room. And today, we have this unbelievable, guaranteed promise. But let me walk you through this. Every week, we're doing three things, ready? Platitude, proverb, and promise. Here's the platitude. And I will say this, um, It's not even a good platitude. It's a destructive heresy. See, in 2011, there's a pastor. His name was Rob Bell, and he released a book called Love Wins. Now, if you're not familiar with Rob Bell, right? He was a mainstream evangelical pastor. He was known for this. He was witty. He was intelligent, and he was creative. But he started creating a theology that was actually outside the text, that the text actually refutes and speaks against. Um, Let me just see if I can summarize it. In his book, Love Wins, uh, the the theme went like this. God wants all people to be saved. Uh, God gets what he wants. Therefore, all people will eventually be saved. Did you get it? God wants all people to be saved. God gets what he wants. Therefore, all people are eventually going to be saved. And so, for Rob Bell in his book, what he writes about, he says, hell is actually two things. Hell is when you rebel against God here on earth, and you create all kinds of problems for yourself, so you experience hell on earth. Hell also, though, is a temporary place that people go where kind of the sin is burned off them. They're taught to, uh, to follow God. They're there to pay for the things they've done wrong, and but eventually. They go to heaven and everyone goes to heaven because love wins. Um, does your family play board games? Uh, sometimes mine, my family members do. There's certain people in our family that uh, are little more, um, they care more about who wins, particularly if it's them. We call them competitive people. Are there any competitive people in the room? Raise your hand. Yeah, yeah, look around. If you want them in your community group, never play board games. Okay. Um, My family, though, we do play board games, but it is interesting because there's those that aren't that competitive. um, As we play the game, we realize that at the end of the game, all the cards, all the Monopoly money, all the pieces, and the board, they all go back in the same box, and we put it away because none of it really counts or matters. That's the concept of universalism. It's the concept that God is playing this unbelievable game on earth. And in the end, all of it just gets packaged up. Followers of Jesus, not followers of Jesus, agnostics, atheists, people from all different religious backgrounds, and all just gets boxed up, put back in where God is, and it's a place called heaven. That's what universalism is. And that's what Rob Bell was aspiring, uh, was proclaiming. But here's what I want you to get. The false platitude actually corrupts the gospel with this universalism. Because it actually doesn't agree with Scripture. But I, really, I want to be really fair, because there's a couple Scriptures that Rob would go, I mean, he didn't write a book that's like, hey, disregard the Bible altogether. He's like, no, no, let me tell you how I understand the Bible. He would go to a verse like this. It's in your notes. I think it'll show up on the screen here. First uh, Timothy chapter 2. Verse three, it says, this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. God wants everybody to be saved. But let me show you, give you three reasons real quick from the text here uh, about why it doesn't mean that everybody goes to heaven. The first is this. In verse one of this chapter, Paul's writing to Timothy, he says, I urge you, first of all, that petitions, prayers, and intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people. Same word, it's it's all people. He's like, well, pray for everybody. But then he says this, for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Because the concept is, is, who do church people pray for? Their family and other church people. The king's. The authorities, the governors, those that belong to the Roman system, the the culture that he's writing to, he's like, they don't support you. They're actually anti-Jesus, anti-church. They're the only—the Caesar's the only king. There's no Jesus as king. And because of that, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray for those in authority over you. Because I I want not the—I don't want elitist prayers— like, just pray for the people around you. Just pray for your church. I want you to actually pray for the people who are super far from God. So he's saying, I want you to pray for all types of people. So later on, when he says, this is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved? He's like, even those kings, even those authorities, I believe what he's trying to say is God wants all types of people. He's not saying everybody on earth. I want them all to believe. Yes, God so loved the, he loves them all. He doesn't kick in the door of their life and say, whether you like it or not, you're coming with me to heaven. Second reason, right after he says, this is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved, then what does it say? And come to a knowledge of the truth. Well, that's what God wants too, right? He wants everyone to come to a knowledge of the truth. What's the truth? The number one promise in the Bible is that people would recognize Jesus as their Savior so they could have eternal life. I'll get to that in a minute. That's the truth he wants them to get. Stop for a minute. People die every single day as atheists and agnostics. People die every single day going, I don't believe that. So let's just admit this. God doesn't get what he wants. Because what does he want? Well, he wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Well, they don't come to a knowledge of the truth. And by the way, we have no scriptural evidence whatsoever that there's a place where they will come to the knowledge of the truth in the afterlife. Third, (laughs) immediately following this verse, in verse 5, it says this, uh, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. That's the truth he wants to get. If everyone just wins, if love wins in the end and God just saves everybody, why talk about this one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, why talk about that at all? If everybody just ends up in the same box at the end of God's weird game. My personal thought is this. I think this universalism is actually not ill-intended. I think it comes from hurting people. I think it comes from people who desperately want their loved ones in heaven. So they take a statement like this, God wants all people to be saved, and they want them. They want them, their people to be saved too. So we start fabricating. We start taking a small truth without considering the context and the rest of Scripture, and we just say, yeah, love wins in the end. Because I'm about to ask the question, um, where are the rest of the Scriptures that speak to this? And this isn't the only one in First Timothy. First Corinthians chapter 15, it's in your notes there. You can take a look. Here's another verse, verse 22 in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, for as in Adam all die. Pause for just a minute. So in Adam, uh, the first man created, because he sinned, we are all born into sin. It's called original sin. Before you ever made a selfish decision, you were a sinner. Let me make it even weirder. That cute little baby just born, you're like, what a cute little baby, how precious. Well, if we were theologically correct, we'd be like, ah. what a cute little sinner! I know it's weird. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So you go whoa 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 whoa. So if, if you're born in Adam, how many people here were born in Adam? Raise your hand. Yeah, all of you. I know there's some people down the aisle. You're like, I think they're aliens. But if you're a human being, you were born in Adam, which means you're sinful. We're born in sin. That's what this verse means. So if if we are in Adam and all in Adam die, meaning they're guilty of sin, so in Christ, all will be made alive. Doesn't that sound like, listen, everybody's then in Christ too, right? Remember, context of a letter matters. Let me give you two reasons why it doesn't mean that all people will be saved. When it says... In Adam, they're talking about all humanity, but then it says this: in Christ. What that means is all those who are in Christ, all those who are in Christ will be made alive, and that that concept of alive in this context, I believe, means that alive to Christ, alive in heaven. It, I think that means eternal life. Question: Is everyone in Christ? No, you have to be. The same way you were born into Adam, you have to be born into Christ. Jesus says you cannot make it unless you are born again. So all who are in Christ will be made alive. A second thought for you on this too is, what if being made alive, when it says in Christ all will be made alive, meaning they're going to be resurrected, but what if after the resurrection there's actually a parting of ways? Let me read this to you. Jesus said this in John 5, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves All who are in their graves will hear His voice and come out. Those who've done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. All in Adam, dead. All in Christ, alive. But then there's a parting. I actually believe the first reason is actually the accurate one, where it says it's only those who are in Christ who are raised to this life. The point is this. Universalism is a false belief that was created by, I think, well-intended people to claim that all people go to heaven. So, there's our platitude. It's based off this proverbial truth in the Scriptures that I think was twisted. And so, here's the question that I want to land on. What's the promise of God? What is God's promise? Um, The flip side to God's promise that I'm going to talk about is how does universalism actually fit into the rest of Scripture? Uh, Let me give away the secret. It doesn't. The promise of God is this. God's promise to Christians is eternal life. And it's exclusive. It's actually only available to God's family. Those who are born in Christ who accept that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. And I don't know if you know this. Do you know that that the uh, eternal life is the most referenced and greatest promise in all of the Bible? There's more places when we talk about the promises of God, you can just Google like the word promise in the Bible and do a Bible search on it. Whenever that word promise shows up, it speaks more to this reference of eternal life than any other aspect of promises. Example, 1 John chapter two. It says, as for you, see that what you've heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son, Jesus, and in the Father. And this is what he promised us. Verse 25, eternal life. It's God's promise to you if you're a follower of Jesus. That there's a life after this life, where you will be with God forever in a place that we call heaven. Um, I threw an awful lot of other scriptures in there. Let me just read one to you in Hebrews 9.15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of this new covenant this new bonding agreement that God made with us, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that Jesus has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Jesus' own brother James wrote this. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom that he promised to those who love him? One of his number one followers, Peter. Peter put it this way. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. He's like, hey, you want a Christian worldview? You want a perspective on your life? Here it is. Don't look at all the things that are around you immediately. Keep your eyes above that to say there's something coming that we as Christians are looking forward to. That's our reward. It's the place that we will dwell with God forever. But I want to ask this question. Is eternal life exclusive to Jesus' followers, or is it actually universal? Is it open to everybody? Not just open to everybody, but will everybody get it in the end? Because that's different than universalism. is, Is it open to anyone? Oh my goodness. All throughout the New Testament, there's so many writings about how it's not just for the Jewish people, but how it's for Gentiles. And people who are far from God. In the end, in Revelation, when this place is described, it's people from every tribe and every nation around the world, which is why I love this room. Because y'all don't look alike. Because I think in this room, we get a flavor for how you grew up unique to your background. And in this room, there's people who are so different. Maybe you haven't even been in this country a long time. And we love that. Because the races that are represented, the different people groups that are represented makes this a rich place and a little bit more like heaven. Is eternal life exclusive to Jesus' followers or is it universal? I'm about to read to you a a couple of verses here that are weighty. They're sobering. I'm about to read to you something that no one's going to get up and be like, yeah. Things like Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse eight says, "He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might on the day that He comes to be glorified in His people, and to be marveled at among all those who have believed." There's a weight to that. There's a sadness to that, and yet there's an, it creates an urgency in us. I'll get to that in just a minute. The book of Romans. The book of Romans is the closest thing that we have to a systematic theology. You know what I mean by that? I mean, kind of a systematic way of describing, um, here's how it begins in our brokenness. Here's what God was doing. Everyone is lost. <clears throat> here's what G- God did in Jesus in his death so that we could have forgiveness. And it, it's this systematic building of what God has done. But when you get to Romans chapter two, verse five, it reads this way. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they've done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There is a parting of the ways. There is no possible way you can justify universalism from these these words. God's word speaks against it over and over and over again. Now, you might be thinking, this kind of sounds a lot like merit-based salvation. Did you catch that? God will repay each person according to what they've done. Those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth follow evil. But I want you to remember the context of this This is chapter 2 of Romans He's laying out a process That says, here's our lostness in the world Here's the consequence of lostness It doesn't You get to chapter 3, the next chapter And it says this And all are justified freely by His grace Meaning it's a free gift to you Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus See, He's just saying, listen There's going to be this parting of the ways And here's how you know you're on God's team By the way, He doesn't join your team, right? We get to join his team. We get to follow the life that he has for us. And he's like, it's all found in Jesus. Starting in chapter 3 and following its way through the the book of Romans, through the, the logic of that, that's the clarity. Universalism is completely rejected by the Scriptures. So can I ask you this question? So Jesus can kind of make these claims about no one can come to the Father except through him. He can make that claim in John 5 where there's a separation. Those people are going to go to to a place of destruction and these people are going to go to eternal life in in, in heaven. He can make those claims, but um, does he give us any proof that that it's true and right? Three of his friends thought so. Mary and Martha, sisters, and they had this brother, Lazarus, and Jesus is going to Jerusalem and he's going to go die on the cross. But before he does, um, he pauses with his followers and he gets word Lazarus is sick Jesus you've healed people before You love Lazarus You're tight with them Mary, Martha, Lazarus I mean you guys have been together before Like you gotta go heal him And Jesus is like we're gonna wait He literally is waiting for Lazarus to die And then Jesus makes his way And Mary and Martha come to him And they're mad Like you let us down I'm giving you a real loose translation of the text. You let us down. If you had been here, our brother would not have died. And in that moment, it's interesting because Jesus then makes this statement. He's like, I know, but I want you to hear this. I am the resurrection and the life. I have the power to take dead people and raise them up. I have the power to give people new life. And he's not even talking about like spiritual new life. He's like, no, I can raise the dead. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. He's promising an afterlife, an eternal life. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And they go on to say, yes, we believe that there's a life after this. But I'm not sure they were convinced that Jesus had the power to give people eternal life. So Jesus says, where'd you bury him? And they walk from their home to the place where they buried Lazarus. And Jesus pauses for a moment. He just weeps because of all the darkness and, uh, around this death and the sorrow. He says, take the stone away like, Jesus, that ain't a good idea. He'd been dead four days. He stinks. This is literally in the Bible. That body, mm -mm, I'm not moving that stone away. You get somebody else to move that stone away. He's going to stink. It's been hot and muggy. It's going to be bad. She's like, move the stone. And then (laughs) John actually recorded what Jesus said. He said, Lazarus, come out. A guy wrapped in grave clothes walks out of a tomb after being dead for four days. Remember, Jesus was saying, I'm the resurrection, I'm the life. I can give you eternal life. I can help you cross that. When when you die here on earth and your earthly life is over, your life doesn't have to be over. You don't have to be separated from God. I can keep you in the presence of God. I have the ability, the power. I am the resurrection and I am the life. Do you believe that? And he's like, Lazarus, come out. He raises him from the dead. I don't know about you, but anybody who's going to raise the dead like that, I trust that he's the resurrection and the life. And I haven't walked you through, we haven't even talked about this, we talked about it last year when we studied the book of Mark, the three predictions that Jesus made were of his death and his own personal resurrection, that he himself would come back to life, predicted it three times before he went to the cross, and then he comes back to life. Are you with me? He's the one who gives us proof and evidence of who he is. You might think, oh, there's just a book and it's words on a page, and yeah, it doesn't all agree with the universalism, but how do I know that Jesus gets me to heaven? He proves it over and over and over again. And those who saw it and witnessed it, they wrote it down. Not only that, but they went to prison and were beaten and were killed, claiming that that was the truth. See, the reality of the truth is this, is that even if Jesus raised the dead, this is stated in the scriptures, some people just will never believe. And by the mercy of God, may he change their minds. Does Jesus give us any proof? Absolutely. So let's just assume for a moment. No, let's not assume. I think I've stated it clearly enough. Universalism isn't true. The only way to eternal life is through Jesus. Question. What's the right response then for you and me? What's the right response then for the world? If you look in your notes there, I'm just going to run through these real quick. And can I ask you this? Are these your responses? I mean, personally, have you had this response to Jesus? The first is this um, the appropriate response to the promised eternal life is this uh, don't miss it. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Have you crossed the line of faith? And have you said, Jesus, I, I really honestly believe that you died on the cross for my sins? Have you received that? I mean, the stakes are too high. For us to be wishy-washy about it, or like, yeah, when I was four, I prayed a prayer. It's not about praying a prayer. It's about you committing your life to follow him. It's about us saying, Jesus, every day, I know you're with me. You've earned the right to take the leadership of my life, so just don't miss it. The second is this, man, if you're in, we should be thankful, because that could have been me. And here's what I mean by that. You know, I told you last week that I was down in Guatemala, walked into a village that had never seen Americans before. And Guatemala is weird, man. I feel like a giant. Everybody's about this tall. I mean, there's no hiding me in that village. And you walk in, and the poverty, you can smell it. You can feel it. who am I that God would allow me to be born into the family I was born into and not born into poverty? Flip that around for spiritual truth. I look at our world that is in spiritual poverty. People are born into families who are so against Jesus. Maybe they believe something totally different. Maybe they're Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, whatever. They were born with people who go, ah, Jesus, no way, that's that's faulty, that's a lie. Maybe atheist or agnostic. Like I could have been born into that family. I could have been born into such spiritual poverty that I would have never gotten it. Who am I to be born to parents who love Christ? God, I'm so thankful. But that thankfulness has got to switch gears into generosity. And what I mean by that is this, it's got to switch gears into the generosity of making heaven crowded. <laughs> we're going to preach a new um, series come September on the values of our church. We, we've, over this COVID season, we've done what we've called reimagining church. So we're going to do a series called Church Reimagined. And it, it is kind of a relaunching of our church. It's a reset button to say, let's all imagine together what this could be. So we're going to preach to the five values of our church, and the number one value of our church is this. It's making heaven crowded. We want a crowded heaven. What what does that mean? It means we know right now that there's people who are living in spiritual poverty. They don't know Jesus, and we want to help them find Jesus. We want to display the irresistibility of Jesus so that lives are transformed. Let's fill up heaven. Let's do it in such a way that we're bringing new people in here all the time coworkers, neighbors, family because we're convinced that not everybody ends up in the same box in the end, that there's a place separated from God and there's a place with God, that we would want to make heaven crowded. The fourth probably appropriate response would be, can we push back instant gratification? I just know this off of my own personality. It's really easy to live for myself. And not really think about the rewards or the reality and the consequences of life after death. It feels so far off. Even though my death could be today on the way home. Even though Jesus could come back tomorrow. Can we actually start valuing the eternal more than the, our careers? More than the things that make us happy today? The fifth thing. This might sound weird, but... Um, What if the right response is to enjoy God today? (laughs) I mean, in the scriptures, Jesus, when he shows up, he says, the kingdom of God has come. It's here. It's right now. Can I clarify this? The kingdom of God, when Jesus came, came to earth, but partially. We're still born and live in a broken, sinful world. But God is like the kingdom of righteousness, of justice, the way things will operate in heaven. I'm introducing it to you. Uh, It's here partially right now. I'm with you. So enjoy me today. We still know we hold two things in our hands, the blessings of God and the joy of being with Him, and we also hold suffering in the other hand because of the world we live in. Do you enjoy God? Let me finish with this. The sixth response to this eternal life is consider the cost of following Jesus. I don't think we can paint a picture that the Christian life is easy. (laughs) By the way, if you do paint a picture that the Christian life is all easy and it's about your comfort, you totally go against 2,000 years of history of the church. Jesus, yeah, he paid for our sins on the cross, but to follow Jesus is costly. Jesus himself, Matthew 16, he says this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. I think it means this, you just don't get to live however you want. As a follower of Christ, you've joined his family, and when you join his family, you adopt their family values. You have a heavenly father who calls the shots. You have a savior who's earned the right to say, Follow me and do it in this way. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up the cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Give it up, give up your rights. Oh, that's not very American. The gospel's not American. The gospel's so much bigger than that. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good would it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come into his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. The gospel's costly. It costs Jesus his life. And he invites you to follow. It's not easy. But look at what we get in the end. And as we follow him, his mission, he wants to display the irresistibility of Jesus all over this world so that lives are transformed. But he wants you on mission with him, and that mission will cost us. I think our gratitude has to switch gears to generous living. The greatest promise... And the most repeated promise in the Bible is the promise of eternal life, but not everyone is going to receive it. And that should change how we live. Can we pray? As you bow your heads, I'm going to have the band come out right now, and I just want to give you space to think before we pray. Listen to my voice. Are you in? I mean, are you in God's family? When I say don't miss it, Are you wondering whether you have? Thankfulness. I mean, do you realize that it could have been you on the outside? Maybe today your prayer is going to be, thank you, God. Maybe this urgency to save others, this generosity to to save people. Maybe you have people coming through your mind right now, and maybe your prayer is this, God, would you... Mercifully save so and so And you have names to that And maybe in your prayer time God is going to give you an idea Of what it is he wants you to do So that those people can Save him He, he might not just do it without you Maybe he wants to do it through you Maybe you need to Enjoy God Maybe God's Inviting you to sacrifice Something So that you might participate in his kingdom, in this local church that is on a mission so that lost people can be found. Instead of just listening to my prayer, would you pray your own prayer right now? And honestly, if you've never crossed the line of faith, today's your day right now. Use your words, and it might sound something like this. Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, I bow my life to you. I've messed up I know I'm not in your family, but today would you forgive me and would you adopt me as your son, as your daughter so that I would know eternity with you forever, that I, that I walk with that promise daily, that your promise is good always and forever for every person, that all who call in the name of Jesus will be saved. God, I believe that. And I want to follow you today. Lord, I know eternity feels so far off and it doesn't shape how we live every day, but it should. So God, forgive us for not allowing the weight of heaven and hell to be our daily reality. Help us to build friendships where we might encourage each other as that day approaches and help us to build friendships so that people... Who don't know you yet god that they would trust us that we could show them the evidence from your word that you are the resurrection and the life help us to live with different hearts that have eternity in mind and if you want that you want to live like that would you simply say amen stand with me i want us to finish by just singing and I state this every week, and I hope you don't miss it, that if you ever have a turning point in this room where you cross from death to life, non-Christian to Christian, an eternity without God to an eternity with God, if you've done that, don't let that be the greatest secret in your family. It's not a secret. It was never intended to be. Tell somebody. Write it down on one of those cards and turn it in. and Let us know how to contact you to just say, way to go. We just want to pray for you and encourage you. All right? Share that with people. Share that with the people that you came with today. All right, let's finish by singing together.